speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that as we look at uh, number 16 now, your spirit would indeed guide us into all your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our culture loves a rebel. Uh, who's the national hero of Australia? Surely it's, uh, it's got to be this guy, Ned <laughs> Kelly, right? The closest thing that we have, probably the most famous uh, man in Australian history was a rebel, a bush ranger. Um, he lived in Victoria and he was guilty of multiple thefts and assaults before murdering three police officers. Uh, and, you know, we know him so well. We know his iconic armour. It's, it's in the museum that, um, that his, the, the governor at the time, ironically, uh, built this museum, but this museum shows more about Ned Kelly than it does about the governor. So we don't, who, who knows the governor in Victoria at the time? No one, right? But we all know about Ned Kelly, <coughs> the rebel. Um, it's got a massive monument at Glen Rowan where he had his final stand. Um, and there's a series of famous artworks done by Sidney Nolan, the Ned Kelly series, telling his story. And he's painted as this kind of iconic figure. And he's even got a Madame Tussauds wax sculpture made of him. Uh, so he, he's like immortalised in wax. And of course... You can see, look at that beard, you know. He's inspired a whole generation of hipsters <laughs> with his hipster beard. Well, maybe not. <coughs> but our culture loves a rebel. And you can understand why. There's a lot of corrupt leaders who abuse power. There's a lot of things that are wrong with our world that should be rebelled against. And we're suspicious of authority. Who says they got it right, those leaders? How do we know we can trust them? Well, today, in Numbers 16, we're looking at a rebel, a rebellion. And I want to look at uh, just a few aspects of this shocking story. First, I want to go through the story and then draw out a couple of points of significance for us today. So, Firstly, let's go through the story and we see that it's a rebel story. Number 16 tells us the story of Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, if you remember the context, they uh, sent out the spies uh, into the land and the spies had gone into the promised land. They've come, the whole people have come from Egypt. They've been saved from slavery in Egypt and, and Moses has been walking with them <coughs> through this land and taking them to the promised land. And 10 of the spies brought back this bad report and say, we shouldn't go in, we shouldn't go in. Two of the spies brought back a good report saying, yeah, we should go in, we should have faith in God and take it. But the community of Israel, the people listened to the 10 spies who gave the bad report. And as a result, God says, you're all going to just walk around the wilderness and all of that generation except for Caleb and Joshua are going to die in the wilderness. As they're going around the wilderness, um, Korah isn't happy about it. Um, 
And it says that we read in verse, uh, in verse 1, Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, uh, so descendants of Reuben, uh, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. Now, even here, at the beginning of this section, we have something a little bit confusing if you look at your different translations. So, NIV says, became insolent, and it's got this footnote, or took men. Um, ESV just says, took men. NASV, which is even more literal, word for word, says, took, and in italics, action. Now, NSV puts words that are implied in italics. So, this is getting us closer to the Hebrew text. Literally in Hebrew, it just says, these men took, and they rose up before Moses. And you think, okay, the translators are having different guesses about what they took. Did they take action? Did they take men? Or where do we get this NIV, they became insolent? Well, Wherever this is happening throughout the rest of the passage, this occurs six times in the passage, this word took in the Hebrew, it always refers to these censers. These, they took the censers, which they were burning incense with before the Lord. So it could be to do with that. Or the thing that follows it after, after it is these men, these 250 men that go with them. But here, I think this taking of senses refers to this taking of something that wasn't meant to be theirs, right? It was meant for the priestly role, this taking. So maybe that's where the NIV is getting this becoming insolent, they're taking something. When you just hear that word, they talk, it suggests grasping or seizing something which wasn't rightfully theirs. And it's interesting how this has just been put at the beginning of the passage. They're taking. So NIV became insolent, probably captures the, the heart of it, because took men, took action, kind of doesn't really fit with the context. They took, they were taking, uh, trying to take Moses and Aaron's rightful role. They were saying, no, we want that for ourselves. They took and rose up against Moses. Now, <coughs> as we read on, we read in, in verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them is holy. They've got an interesting argument. If you go back to um, in uh, Exodus 19.6, you see that um, the people of God were called a holy nation. So they're kind of taking this and then applying it. You guys are no more holy than everyone else. They're kind of taking a scripture out of context and making more of it than what it says. And they're saying, you have no right to be the high priest, Aaron. Everyone's holy, everyone can approach the Lord. Why then, he says, why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Korah feels passionately that something wrong is being done. 
He doesn't believe that Moses and Aaron are God's appointed leaders. He says, you set yourselves above the assembly. He's cynical. He thinks this is merely human leadership, only their own ambition. As the reader, we know, as you've gone through the, um, the story, you know that they haven't set themselves up. Moses didn't even want to lead the people. He said, no, God, not me, don't pick me. Aaron didn't set himself up, did he? He was commissioned and commanded by God to do this role. So as we go through the rest of the story, (coughs) we see uh, a few things happen. When this happens, Moses falls face down in verse... um, In verse 4, we read, when Moses heard this, Korah's, Korah's reaction to him, he fell face down. It wasn't a, put you in your place, Korah. It was this action of humility before God. And he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. And he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses will come near to him. You, Korah, and all your followers do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. So Moses puts it back on Korah, doesn't he? And so, as we read in the the reading, the story unfolds. Uh, Moses gives them this challenge, this test. Okay, let's see who is right here. And we all heard how Korah's rebellion ended in tragedy for him. How that test comes about and uh, the earth opens up and all of the rebels fall into the earth. You can only imagine the terrible scene, how frightening it would be right? It's, it's gut-wrenching just to imagine it, let alone being there and seeing that happen, the earth just open up and people just fall down into it and get swallowed by the earth. So God does this amazing miracle of judgment in this case. And you're left just shocked and uh, I don't know how it makes you feel, You know, um, I like to uh, do skateboarding as a, as a hobby. I've, I've, liked, I've done, done skateboarding since I was uh, in my teens, and now I'm getting my kids into skateboarding, so we go to the skate park, and um, they love it. Uh, but, you know, skateboarding is pretty dangerous. Uh, so, you know, this is an example of what you want to do in skateboarding. You want to, um, you know, this guy's, he's ollied onto the rail, he's doing a rail slide and he lands it perfectly. You can see the whole sequence. So this is what he's going for, yes. Um, But then sometimes you fail, right? And skateboarding fails are painful. This guy, instead of going onto the rail, he's gone smack bang into the rail. Or these guys, skateboarding fails. 
And this is how you kind of feel like that gut-wrenching, like have you, if you watch some of those YouTube skateboarding fails, and you go, oh, that's sickening just watching that. Just coming to Korah's rebellion here, we think like, you can see he was, what he was aiming to do was challenge the leadership, but it was a horrible fail. How did he go so wrong? It's got terrible consequences. I mean, you could die from skateboarding if you had a really serious fail, but Cora's fail is not only death for himself, but has these huge, like, lots of people, hundreds of people die through following his false, misguided convictions, his false leadership as a rebel. So I want to draw out two things. We've gone through the story. I want to draw out two things from this. Firstly, this, this story is a warning story. It's a warning story for us. <coughs> now, you can be so convinced that you're right, can't you, like Cora, and you'd be horribly wrong. Uh, don't take what is not yours, grasping for power, like Cora. Don't misinterpret scripture and apply it in the wrong way. It can go horribly wrong. Don't presume on God. God is holy and just. You know, um, sometimes people tend to ridicule and mock God or the, even the idea of God as a figment of human imagination. Because they think that God is not real, they feel free to deride and to scoff at God and the Bible. Even as Christians, I think we can tend to forget who God is and be too casual with God. I think when we read a story like this, it gives us a reality check about God's power and God's justice. We often have a God who is too small, who's a domesticated God, who we just shape into a moulding of our own kind of wishes and hopes. It becomes just a reflection of our own thoughts and feelings, our own biases and presuppositions. And a God like that is no real God, is it? It is just a figment of our imagination. So we need to keep in touch by reading God's Word with the real God, the God who created the world, the God who's revealed Himself through history, uh, the God who's come ultimately in Jesus, the full and final revelation of God. And this story shows us that God is unapproachable. We must never let familiarity lead to contempt. Korah was one of the Levites. He was one of the the chosen um, servants in the temple. It seems like he just kind of got a bit too familiar with God and thought, yeah, we're all holy. I could do this. what, What are you saying, Moses? You're just making this up. He's got... Familiarity has led to contempt. We only approach the throne of grace with boldness as Christians through Christ, don't we? Never in our own strength, but we can approach God 
by God's grace to us in Jesus. Never with pride, never with presumption, never trusting in our own goodness or righteousness. No matter how bad life is, we mustn't uh, think that we've got nothing left to lose either. That was another mistake that Korah made. You might have think, oh, look, I'm in the desert. We've been told we're never going to get into the promised land anyway. Well, hey, who cares? I'm just going to challenge Moses. He still had a lot left to lose, didn't he? God is judge and will hold us to account. It's a warning. Our actions have consequences for others. Sometimes we just kind of think we'll um, maybe do something and, well, what's the big deal? It won't matter. But consider the warning here in Korah's actions for his family, for the community of Israel and all of the chaos that unfolds afterwards. You know, um, I like these demotivator posters. I think I've showed you this to you before. Um, you know, like those motivation posters, posters, they're supposed to inspire you to something. Well, there's these demotivators, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> it's pretty depressing, right? If you fail that badly, <laughs> maybe the whole sole purpose of your life was a warning to others. And that's kind of what you get the picture here with Korah and his rebellion, right? He made a horrible, horrible mistake. And when you see that sunken ship of Korah's life, or that sunken family, that sunken, uh, uh, all those people going down into the earth, we need to be reminded, do not make the same kind of mistakes that we see Korah made. This is a warning story. Do not shipwreck your life by pride and presumption. Don't sink your life and the lives of your family by rebelling against God. That brings me to my second observation. This is a love story. And you go, what? Andrew, how do you get that? This is, this is not a love story. It's a story of people tragically being swallowed up by the earth. But it is Trust me, it's a love story. Let me explain. As we look at this story, um, we see God working to save his people, right? And we know that from, from the beginning of time, when God created us, we were created for a loving relationship with God. Um, that's why he made us. That's at the heart of our purpose as people. We're made for a loving relationship with God and then sin enters the world. And then throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we see God working to bring people back to himself, uh, working to promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless all peoples of the earth through you. And God's working out this plan to bring all peoples of the earth back to Him. And this happens through forming this nation of Israel, giving them these laws, this picture of this sacrificial system where we see 
that our sins before God cut us off from God and we're separated from Him and we're under God's judgment, we can't approach Him. And then we see, but through sacrifice, through atonement, through someone else taking our judgment, through that animal killed in the temple, which points forward to Jesus who dies for us, that we can have access to God as our sins are atoned for, covered, taken away, as all our guilt and shame is removed, then we can come back to God and experience that loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator, that we were made for. So this is God working out this love story for humanity. And if God didn't intervene to bring uh, an end to anything that would ruin His plan of salvation for the world, then that story wouldn't happen. Korah's rebellion could have put an end to God's loving purposes for humanity and the world if God had let it. We see God's love in a range of ways here, in, 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 in the smaller ways, in the details of this story too. Um, God's love, we see it in sparing the people of Israel um, when they were consistently grumbling against God and they seem to be going along with Korah. There's this moment in the story where um, God says, Aaron and Moses, get away from them. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Aaron and Moses fall face down again. They say, God, don't, don't do it. Um, and God has mercy on them. And he says, okay, tell everyone to get away from Korah. He limits his judgment on Korah, Dathan and Abiram and, uh, and spares the people. God shows grace, undeserved favor. Even for Korah, it sounds like in the story all of his children died, right? But in Numbers 26, 11, if you follow through the, the numbers, the lists of, of the people, we read, the line of Korah, however, did not die out. In the Psalms, we read of the sons of Korah writing songs of praise to God. So even God has grace on Korah's descendants. Um, not all of them perished, uh, in that terrible event. And we see God's love in protecting and preserving His people <coughs> from all false leaders who would lead them astray, from these false leaders. We see God's love in, um, even in this warning, this warning to everyone. I think about it, if God didn't step in and do something and it just unfolded not only would his plan of salvation not happen but people wouldn't know that he was real god's judgment itself can be an act of grace that prevents us from thinking ah oh, look this god stuff isn't real we see god's judgment happening it makes it clear to us the dangerous consequences of sin and so warns us to come back to God. It brings that 
that future end-time judgment of God that every person will face into crystal clear clarity by bringing that into the present in the time of Korah, that he experiences God's judgment right then and there. He doesn't wait till he's dead and faces God. And this is an act of grace, isn't it? Recognizing that um, we need to heed this warning that God's judgment is real. Like Korah, we're already condemned and we need atonement. Like Korah, we need a mediator between us and God. We can't approach God by ourselves. And it all points forward to Jesus, that God would provide that atonement through maintaining this people of Israel, through instituting the sacrificial system that points forward to Jesus, then through sending his own son as a man to die for our sins so that we can once again know God and experience his love. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Korean drama Love in the Moonlight. I see some laughing and smiling faces. It's a love story, a K-drama, a historical drama, and it's set in the Joseon dynasty in Korea. There's this girl, Ra-on, and she has been forced to live as a boy since when she was little. She doesn't know why at the start. And she's disguised as a man. Uh, She runs into all sorts of trouble before ending up, strangely, as a eunuch in the royal uh, court. And you know this is meant to be a love story between Ra'on and the crown prince. But you're wondering, how is this going to work out? How? Here's the prince. She's a poor commoner with dubious career. Um, he's he's uh, very suspicious from her, of her from the outset. She's acting deceptively. And, well, he thinks she's a guy, you know. You can't get much worse of a start to a romantic relationship than that, right? But <coughs> it is a love story, and it does work out. Without giving too much spoilers, they fall in love. And, oh, wow, dude, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful romantic love story. And like this love story, this story of Korah's rebellion is part of God's love story for human history. Like Ra'on, at the beginning, there's no way you think that this love with the prince could ever work out. And looking around us in the world, we could look around and think, there's no way that God's love for us, love for our world, could ever work out. But God promises us that happy ending this love story will work out. And that's through Jesus. So, in conclusion, I just want to have a a final note for you rebels out there. Does it mean you just have to, you know, like, forget your rebellious spirit? (coughs) We love rebel things, right? Rebel sport, um, the rebel SUVs and, and, and uh, cars. Rebel is a famous branding thing 
Um, rebels, rebel images are everywhere. So there's something in us that we love a rebel. Well, why is that? Um, Matt Davies, who uh, is, a, is a brand consultant, says this. Rebel, the rebel image is a powerful marketing identity for brands because something is wrong with the world and it needs challenging pushing back upon, overturning, rebelling against. Leading these revolutionaries are the archetypal rebel, filled with purpose, keen to disrupt the rebel as enduring value to anyone unsatisfied with the circumstances they find themselves in. And well, I feel like, wow, it feels like I want to be a rebel now, right? The message of Korah is clear. We need to be careful what we rebel against. We need to be careful. Um, We need to make sure we're rebelling against the right things. But I want to give you maybe a few good outlets for your rebellious spirit if you're feeling rebellious. Firstly, though, we must be sure not to rebel against God. Because if you rebel against God, you're rebelling against the one who made you and loves you, the one who knows what's best for you. If you're rebelling against God, you're fighting against the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, eternal, immortal, and the one who's actually your only hope and your true lover. Why would you do that? So don't rebel against God. Our society offers all of these packaged rebellions. It plays to our desires, our fears, our dissatisfactions and our quest for identity by offering what we want to hear. Like the lie of Korah's pride. These packaged rebellions promise what we desire but deliver dissatisfaction. But there's a lot in our world we do need to rebel against. We need a Christian counterculture, a rebel culture, We need to discard the world's lies. We need to be filled with purpose and determination in the face of society's meaninglessness and complacency. We need to disrupt the lies of this world with God's truth. And we need to rebel against the hopelessness in this world by continuing to hold out the message of hope in Jesus and God's, uh, God's love story that will come true.